Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Sarah Kovner about her book, Prisoners of the Empire, Inside Japanese POW Camps. Prisoners of the Empire is a nuanced look at the experiences, the narratives, and the uh, popular and historical memories of those experiences and narratives of allied POWs in Japanese custody, especially uh, English-speaking POWs and their uh, narratives in the English-language world. While never denying the horrors of war uh, and the POW experience in particular, Kovner finds less sort of systemic and intentional cruelty by Japanese camp commanders and guards and staff, etc., than she does poor planning and poor preparation, and often outright neglect when it came to the fate of internees. Simultaneously, the book is sensitive to how POW's experiences differed enormously due to their status in the eyes of the Japanese, as well as the time and place of their captivity. In particular, Kovner contrasts the experience of uh, white, mostly Anglophone POWs with uh, Asian POWs who were more likely to be subjected to systematically poor treatment. In addition, Prisoners of the Empire also explores the ways that Japan was, quote, present even when it was absent in the 20th century history of international agreements on POW treatments and war crimes. Uh, So Kovner has produced a significant, uh, thought-provoking contribution to several different subfields of history. Uh, In addition to its obvious relevance to those interested in the history of modern Japan uh, and World War II, the focus is on World War II, uh, and historical memory, because of its considerations of such issues as the Geneva Conventions, uh, also war crimes trials, the books uh, will also be of interest to readers interested in international law and international relations. So, uh, Dr. Kovner, thank you uh, and welcome to the podcast. So, uh, as always, uh, I want to start off with uh, our traditional question, which is, how did you become interested uh, in this particular project? Thank you for having me. And please call me Sarah. Um, I got interested in this project when I was researching my first book, Occupying Power, Sex Workers and Servicemen in Postwar Japan. And uh, it was towards the end of that project. And I found myself in Geneva in the papers of the, the archive for the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I was looking there. I knew that there were Swiss on the ground. Um, to, and I thought that perhaps they had written something about um, sex workers um, or, or at least uh, servicemen buying sex. Um, much to my disappointment, I found nothing um, about this. Um, but the archivist, knowing I was interested in Japan, suggested I look at their materials on Japan. And there I found all of these reports on prisoner of war camps. And, you know, so I'm a historian of Japan. I spent, I went to graduate school to teach about Japan. And this is not something that was part of the story that I learned. I mean, I kind of, I, but, you know, I, uh, I'm American. And so I had learned about it. I'd heard about it sometime and read about it. It's part of my, um, I guess, lived experience or the experience of uh, relatives, older people that I know. And uh, but it seemed to me that this is was an important part of Japanese history that um, for my students, for Americans, it's, you know, something I often get asked about. And here was the archival 
uh, evidence that I had never, I had never looked for. And therefore I, that's how I got interested in it. Uh, so I'd like to start off talking about uh, your introduction and conclusion together. I think it's useful to, to do that in order to uh, get to some of the big issues that you're talking about. Um, so in both the introduction and the conclusion, uh, you really lay out the way that your book is confronting some critical distortions in the popular memory of the experience of allied POWs, especially in Japanese custody, um, especially uh, distortions in the sort of English language uh, scholarship and uh, you know, public or historical memory. Um, and so where most people see a kind of intentional cruelty, uh, you seem to see a lot of just poor planning and, and neglect. Um, and so I have two questions about this. So I'd love you to uh, first tell us more about this basic argument you're making uh, and what you want readers to come away with at the kind of macro level. What's the big takeaway, right? Um, and then second, if I'm reading your, you right, um, you're arguing, especially in the conclusion, that stories of uh, savagery and brutality on the part of the Japanese were are kind of, for lack of a better word, convenient. In other words, um, that there, you know, factors including uh, the propaganda, et cetera, sort of, uh, and, and racial attitudes make this a useful story uh, and one that kind of resonates and has stuck. I, and I feel like I may be oversimplifying this a bit, but I'd love if you could uh, expand on that for us. So first, I should say thank you for having me, and please call me Sarah. Um, so what I'm trying to do in this book is to talk about how everyone knows how much allied POWs suffered at the hands of the Japanese, um, but we don't know why. And here what I mean by everyone is Americans and Australians and British. Um, and what my book does is it reveals why they were neglected and abused. And um, there are a couple of reasons. One is a lack of planning. The Japanese Imperial Army never expected to take so many prisoners. Also, poor training. They didn't prepare troops or commanders for this task. And the people that were um, sent to the camps to be camp commanders were third-rate officers, um, people who were, were called to those jobs. Uh, also disorganization. There was not a clear chain of command in the stands in contrast to places like uh, Germany. Um, and logistics were poor. And then, of course, there were things that existed in some camps and not others. And the experience of captives could be really up to the camp commander. Um, and the big takeaways for my book, as far as I'm concerned, are that we think of war crimes as being intentional, committed by evil planning. But some of the worst experiences come about through poor planning. And in this case, the leadership just didn't care. There's nothing inherent to Japanese character or culture that led to the inhumane treatment of POWs. Japanese government and military never made it policy to abuse POWs. And the horrors of captivity were because of bureaucratic indifference in large, to a large extent. And to me, what's so shocking is how senior officials gave much less thought to their management that today's accounts assume. And it's Japanese inattention to the challenge of managing POWs and lack of interest in caring for them that led to much of the cruel and inhumane situations. Um, and in terms of your questions, um, the kind of latter part of what you were saying, and the question of oversimplification, I think that, as you all know, historians will always tell you that history is more complex than you think, right? But this is an important part of the story. No doubt, many people suffer brutal experiences, and I've read and come across many of these accounts, but no one cared to find out why, or few cared to find out why. So there's a presumption that there's something particular about the Japanese. And 
To me, the more interesting question is, is there a particular policy or savagery or brutality that the Japanese applied? Or was there something particular about the Japanese? And this is not something that I found. Yeah, I've been uh, thinking and writing a little bit about wartime Japan. Uh, I'm trying to write a book about food and nutrition. And so that question of war planning comes up a lot. And I think a lot of the suffering of the Japanese as well comes from the exact same sort of indifference to planning, uh, just lack of forethought and all these things. And so this really sort of resonated with some of the things I've been thinking about. And I found it one of the uh, really powerful things uh, you know, about your book. Um, so I wanted to ask one other question uh, about your sort of you know, big picture introduction conclusion, because uh, one of the points you make in the introduction, and you return to this uh, a couple of times throughout the book, is uh, on the other hand, right, we've talked about that there's, you know, uh, a lot of variety and sort of diversity in the way that uh, people are, POWs are treated, um, and that there are, and you, you point out that there are significant and sometimes fatal differences in the way that Western and non-Western POWs tended to be treated by uh, Japanese soldiers and the camp commanders. Uh, in your conclusion, for example, you write that uh, Allied POWs treatment varied widely, uh, as you've just said, you know, depending on where and when they're captured, uh, physical conditions, climate, uh, proximity to Tokyo, um, and most importantly, the, perhaps the uh, camp commander. The treatment of, for example, Chinese POWs is much more uniform and decidedly not in a good way, right? And I just want to quote you here because you say, here, there's significant evidence that Japanese commanders plan to deal with them harshly from the outset in China and throughout Asia, including both civilians and servicemen. So I guess, I mean, it, it, there's a certain intuitive answer to this, but why were the Chinese so poorly treated? And to what extent did this apply to other Asians? And why or why not? So this is a really important question. Um, because I think that the case of the Chinese shows what could happen when senior Japanese leadership had a deliberate policy and plan. Um, and for just one example, uh, there's significant evidence in Singapore, something I write about in my book, that ethnic Chinese were treated far worse. There, the 25th Army headquarters, and many of these uh, soldiers and officers had military experience in China, are using harsh retaliatory measures similar to the ones they used in China. Um, and the Japanese military in Singapore believed that ethnic Chinese would oppose their rule and kill somewhere, and this is a large fan, but between five and 50,000 ethnic Chinese. My book is mainly about a particular category of captive, prisoners of war, who were covered by the Geneva Conventions, um, which established standards of international law for humanitarian treatment in war. And Japan, of course, is a signatory to what we think of as the first two conventions at this time, right? And they agreed to follow them, mutatis mutandis, meaning depending on circumstances. And the Japanese should have come under this category once there was a state of war in the second Sino-Japanese War, right? But And yet there were fewer than 100 so categorized. Uh, as you mentioned, also the treatment of all captives was widely wildly differential, so it's difficult to generalize. Um, and as to this question of other Asians, I think this is even more complex. For example, returning to Singapore, when we look at the 60,000 Indians taken prisoner after the Battle of Singapore, right? And in this case, the Japanese supported the formation of the INA and tried to recruit them. And then the different experiences yet different in places like in Dutch Indochina. Yeah. Um so this is, yeah, I think this is, um, you know, a, a, a really, as you said, a really important point that you're trying to make uh, th throughout the book. Um, and I want to 
you know, go back and contrast this um, with uh, the sort of prehistory that you lay out in chapter one, right? Because as I sort of mentioned in the, in the uh, uh, introduction to the podcast, of course, this is really a book about World War II uh, the, and you know, sort of mid, mid-century. Um, but you do a really interesting prehistory that touches on World War I uh, um, and some of the, uh, you know, the Russo-Japanese War, et cetera, uh, in chapter one. So I want to talk about that. Um, so you're proceeding chronologically from the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, even through the end of the occupation, um, as the Allies then try to reckon with the uh, that war at Geneva again. Um, and you start, though, with the story of how Japan carefully repositioned itself uh, as this sort of model civilized nation in the way it treated at least some of its POWs and, and how this fit into its sort of initial modern foray into great game politics. Uh, so the Red Cross, the, Je- the Japanese Red Cross, for example, uh, engagement with international conventions on war, which you've just mentioned, um, the POW camps for Russians during the Russo-Japanese War, Germans in World War One. Uh, these are all sort of showcases uh, for the level of Japanese civilization, right? Uh, and though, as you point out in the former case, there's this ominous contradiction in how the, the Japanese treated the Chinese and Koreans who worked for the Russians, right? So, so you also point to conflicts between this sort of outward-facing embrace of the West uh, in the Japanese military and then the social structure within the barracks. And I thought this was a really critical part of your larger argument about the treatment of POWs and that it sort of spills over into World War II. So I'd love for you to uh, sort of flesh that out for us. Okay, so as you know, and as we've commented already, um, so during the early part of the 20th century, Japan is seeking to follow international law to demonstrate the extent to which they were civilized and cultured country. And this is the build up to how well um, and why the Japanese were so determined to treat Russian POWs well, prisoners well, um, during the Russo-Japanese War. They held some 80,000 and their treatment was world famous. And of course, they are also holding Germans during World War One. Um, and then after World War I, um, or after what many people think was World War I, we got fighting in Siberia and the Siberian intervention in the late teens. And this may have encouraged an indifference to human life. And among officers, it led to the view that being taken prisoner was dishonorable. Um, and then in 1939 at Nirmohan, right? This is something we talk less about today, um, many of us at least, but it's a major conflict in which 100,000 troops clash. When men fell in battle there, comrades often abandoned them on the field. And then the Japanese army bureaucracy preferred to list those missing as killed in action rather than to accept that some were POWs. But uh, it's estimated that some, that a thousand to 4,000 Japanese were captured, maybe most likely 3,000. Um, so this is the fighting part of it. And in terms of this really famous or infamous no surrender doctrine. Uh, The military code announced on January 8th, 1941, instructed soldiers to, quote, not accept the shame of being a POW. And this makes explicit what had been implicit in the account that I just gave you. It's better to die die than be captured as a POW. And this is done in part um, in earlier decades through the publicization or institution of the way of the samurai. And Olin Benish has done really good work on this, I think. Uh, But in considering this doctrine itself, they wouldn't have had to threaten punishment if soldiers really believed it, right? So at one point I'd like to make about this, it seems obvious in retrospect that at least some Japanese servicemen would still surrender. Um, This no-surrender policy, to my mind at least, is an attempt to 
establish a norm and to influence behavior. Uh, and it had a really negative um, unintended consequences, such as leaving officers and guards to feel contempt for the POWs they captured and detained. Uh, and then I guess the final piece for me is in 1933, Japan announcing its withdrawal from the League of Nations. And so then its politicians' hopes for equality with the West were dashed. And this is the death knell for internationalism. Yeah, and just uh, sort of on a personal note here, uh, one of the interesting things about um, doing some research here in Nagoya, where I live, is that Nagoya was one of the places where there was a German BOW camp. And our city archive has some uh, top secret materials from the original POW camp. Uh, and there's apparently a little like a local his historical society that deals just with that camp. Uh, our archivist, though, what was interesting is he showed me this packet of materials, which specifically say, you know, top secret, do, make sure it never falls into the hands of foreigners. And he sort of gleefully showed me this, uh, which I, you know, is one of my favorite things about the archive is they're, they're really good that way. Anyway, um, so I want to move on to uh, chapters two and three. That's not necessarily germane to your book. Um, but so chapters two and three, uh, you've already uh, referenced Singapore. Uh, that's chapter two, uh, a world gone topsy-turvy. And then chapter three, the Philippines Commonwealth of Hell. So I want to treat these two together. Uh, and I think they'd sort of make a nice unit, uh, the sort of comparisons and contrasts. Um, at the beginning of chapter two, you argue that there's no such thing as a typical captivity experience in the Pacific War, the lack of planning for either POWs or civilian internees, the protracted nature of the conflict and the changing fortunes of Japanese forces created a vortex that sent captives in highly unpredictable and dramatically different directions. Nevertheless, I thought it'd be useful to compare for our listeners the specific experiences that you document in these two chapters, um, because there's some, some telling overlaps um, here. Uh, and in particular, you know, the, the experience in the Philippines is encapsulated for many uh, with the Bataan Death March, uh, to a lesser extent, POW hell ship, transport ships. Um, but you complicate this picture both uh, in your chapter on the Philippines and later in the book uh, when the roles are reversed. So I wonder if you could tell us sort of about this sort of uh, the Philippines and Singapore um, and what they can tell us about the larger picture uh, of life for POWs uh, under Japanese, let's call it supervision. Okay, so, I mean, this is a big question, but um, I think that I, I'm writing this, this book is written for an Ameri largely an American audience, although a British and an Australian audience as well. And for each of these audiences, they have different kinds of national memories of the conflict. And um, in Britain and Australia, the history of prisoners of war is something that I think is um, more talked about, more important, more a part of public memory than it is in the United States. And um, Singapore is uh, a big part of this history in Britain in particular. Um, and, and this is because uh, it was such a tremendous defeat for the British in Singapore. And that's important in thinking about what happened. And yeah, when you really dig into the story of what's, what happens on the ground in Singapore, uh, this is not the, it, the accounts that I came across, at least, were not the same as the kinds of accounts that we see in the Philippines, right? So Singapore, the city-state, life in Changi, this is, which is the big POW camp there, um, an internment camp, because this is where many people live their lives. It's not a experience of um, kind of the same kind of uh, horror really that people face in the Pacific, I'm sorry, in the Philippines. And part of that is because the Philippines is uh, an active war front in a different way than Singapore was. Um, and I can go more into detail. I'm not really, uh, 
Sure, but I guess that one thing, one further thing I'll say on this is they're both different kinds of colonial experiences um, where Singapore goes from being a part of the British Empire to being under Japanese rulership. And, and you sort of hinted at that in, um, in your question. And the Philippines, this is somewhere that, um, well, you know, has this long history of, Ameri- of, of being under American rule and then goes to the Japanese. And there are lots of specific things I could say about each of these, but um, I wonder, um, but perhaps I'll leave it for there. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and the, the specifics are, are well laid out in the book. And so I would encourage people to, to get into them there. Um, I guess that, that'll take us to uh, chapter four, A War of Words, right? And so this is a sort of interesting departure from the actual camps themselves. Um, here you're focusing on the diplomatic dance uh, around the Geneva Conventions and how it's handled. And I, I obviously, I really had no idea about this through the Swiss, um, and I, this, I learned a lot about sort of the way that international relations worked. Um, so the Japanese and the allies are both trying to sort of claim the moral high ground and also react to uh, military and logistical sort of expediencies, it seems. Um, so tell us about how, uh, how it sort of things are working out on the ground and the effects this has for, for prisoners, right? So what the, what the diplomats are doing, what that means for the prisoners uh, and why it's being carried out in, in this way. Yeah, I mean, this is something I didn't know about at all before I started this book. And it was something that really took me a long time to figure out how it worked. Because as you know, I'm trained as a historian of Japan, and I do international history, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge about um, what a protecting power was, um, or what the role of the ICRC was and is. And in order to understand the diplomacy around all of this, I had to figure this all out. Um and I mean, that's part of the joy of writing a book, right, is that you get to learn about things that you might not have um, known about before that are, are really important. And what this chapter does is it's talking about the t- diplomacy about it. And I've already referred to the Geneva Conventions. And in some ways, this is kind of one of the main stories that this book tells. Um, they set up requirements and responsibilities that both sides need to follow or the different sides in the particular conflict. And um the, and so that what this means on the ground in Japan or in the United States or in other kinds of places is that the inspectors of the International Committee of the Red Cross are um, inspe- on the ground inspecting the camps. Now, they had to get permission from the, the belligerent power, and whether that's Japan or the United States or um, Australia or whoever, to inspect these camps. And in, and in fact, they were not allowed into every camp or, uh, and only to some of them in the case of the Japanese empire. Um, but so that's one part of it. Another is the kinds of requirements and responsibilities that, um, each of the, that the powers that sign them, uh, need to do in order to, to sign the, the conventions. And, um, to speak a little bit about the Japanese, they set up, uh, they're required to set up an organization, an agency really to create ID cards, lists of prisoners of war and to transmit this information to the ICRC in Geneva. Um, and they create another agency in order to manage logistics. Um, the same per- they end up in um, the case of the second world war, having the same person being in charge of both agencies. But, um, and this is not a particularly successful job that Japan is doing here. Um, and I talk about that at length in my book, um, the failures here, but you know, the way that it's organized on a, um, 
the way that it's organized is that the head of both of these agencies isn't in the chain of command, has no command authority and few personnel working for him. And he's only serving in an advisory role. Uh, We see this in a different way in um, places like Germany, for example. And so in the end, I mean, the Prisoner of War Information Bureau uh, fails in its most basic function. It isn't even able to keep track of the numbers and locations of prisoners of war. Um, but still, I'd argue that it's important. Um, the Geneva Conventions are important for ensuring the treatment of allied POWs. Um, you know, there's no way of knowing it's counterfactual. But uh, I think that this is true for a number of reasons. One is on an official level, there's a conception of how prisoners of war ought to be treated, right? Um, and there's some sort of bureaucratic mechanism for managing all of this. And even if it's not as successful as it should have been, um, and this, that's a counterfactual piece, right? We don't know what it would be like if it didn't exist. And on the U.S. side, it's really quite important for the Japanese Americans and Japanese kept, kept in prisoner of war camps in the United States, where the ICRC, and that's not really a big part of my book, but that is, uh, the ICRC is, um, is visiting these camps. Um, and the way that the conventions work is they rely on reciprocity, right? So the idea is that you treat the prisoners of the belligerent of your belligerent power well, and that they will hopefully treat you well. Um, and so, so yeah, so that is one, one thing that's going on in this chapter. Yeah. Um, and this is a sort of really, you know, it's, it's kind of an interlude, right. Between the, the, uh, tales of the camps themselves. Um, and chapter five takes us back to one of those camps. Uh, it, I mean, it takes us specifically to, uh, Korea, um, and so this is Korea life and death in a model camp. And I thought that, you know, this is an interesting idea that you have these sort of model POW camps. And that's really the point of the chapter, right? Um, so you write that the, uh, the, and I'm quoting you here, the relatively benign conditions of POW camps in Korea seem anomalous compared with common accounts of the POW experience. Uh, therefore, they indicate what happened when senior officials took an interest in the fate of allied POWs in the first months of the war and how the experience of captivity could have been different if they showed the same interest elsewhere. Uh, so especially compared to, uh, you know, we've talked about Singapore and the Philippines, so especially compared to those relatively hellish conditions that are often talked about, what were conditions like uh, in Korea? Um, and then also, you know, specifically, you argue that this is ironically uh, not merely or even mainly to conform to international uh, laws of war, which was, you know, the, the subject of the previous chapter, but meant to provide a model for Japan's colonial subjects. So I wonder if you could bring that part of uh, that this sort of difference between the Korean camp and, and Sing- the experience in Singapore and the Philippines uh, to the fore in your explanation. Right. So um, in general, we're more familiar with the stories of atrocities from the Bataan Death March um, or Burma Thai Railway, but conditions in Korea were quite different than these in in general, right? I'm speaking in general terms. And um, the Japanese government was eager to show off how well they treated captives to the ICRC, who, as I've explained already, then transmit this information to national governments. But um, as I show in this chapter, Japanese government communication showed that the camps were explicitly set up to show Korean men and women on the ground um, how Japan could hold captive European officers. And they made a, and the Japanese uh, on purpose took a group of officers from Singapore and shipped them to Korea to just to show off how they, they could do this, I think. And I mean, and I think this is ironic. It, it, 
In terms of conditions, um, and this is a point at which maybe I can bring this story uh, of uh, what's going on in the Philippines together with what in Japan and Korea. Um, one way that I tried to research this book, one way I did research this book is to, it's hard to compare the camps. And I thought that one way that I could do that would be to look at the accounts of people who were in a number of the camps. So looking at the same people who are in the Philippines, Japan, and Korea, or Singapore um, and Korea. And just to give one example, Lieutenant Colonel Jack Schwartz, who's a medical officer from Fort Worth, was captured in the Philippines at Bataan, was on a ship sunk by American naval aircraft. And he ends up in in Jinsan, Jinsan, excuse me, in 1945. And he's really impressed by the conditions. This is surprising to me when I was reading about it. It's not something one typically finds or thinks of in thinking about a prisoner of war camp. Um, and so that, you know, you quote me as saying benign, I mean, about Jinsan and Keijo and the captivity experience uh, in large part in Korea. But, you know, that still means these are Spartan camps. They're people who are extremely hungry, if not starving. They suffered harsh climates and, um, you know, but they still, they still compared favorably with others. They lived in better conditions and ate better. In Keijo, in Seoul, officers farmed potatoes and vegetables. They raised hogs and rabbits. Um, and so then the question is why, why is this going on in some places in the empire and not others? There are a number of reasons. Um, first, you know, so I think that this indicates what happens when senior officials took an interest in the fate of POWs, allied POWs, and how the experience of captivity could have been different if officers took or um, administrators took a similar interest elsewhere. Uh, the second thing is that uh, Korea is not on the war front. Um, this is quite different from the Philippines or um, other or in other places that um in war theaters. Uh, third, in Korea, is the nature of the work in Jinsen and Keijo, at least. There are few large-scale civil engineering projects. Um, captives are working at an army warehouse, excuse me, forwarding supplies to the Joseon army, making army uniforms. Sometimes they're hired out for small civil engineering jobs. Um, so one pleasant job is building, and that's a quotation from a diary, were built, was building a race course for a wealthy Japanese civilian who provided us with good food and was gentle and manly towards us. And this is, is really not um, at least what I was expecting to find when reading about prisoners of war. You know, but life isn't easy for captives in Korea or anywhere else. There's never enough food or medicine. Um, and uh, captives are, are I think, um, and this is something that comes across again and again when I was reading the diaries, they're focused on their shrinking bodies. And, you know, so I mentioned some of the differences, but there are also some com commonalities, right? Part of what made the POW experience so traumatic for Australians and Americans and British, even when conditions were more tolerable, is that they were being held captive by men they considered their inferiors. Um, and another commonality is there's an element of randomness, I think, in the captivity experience based on the commander and the guards and to some extent group dynamics. Um, so I'll leave it there. Yeah. So this. So one of the things that I I found interesting about the book is you've generally structured the camp experience uh, narratives in these kind of concentric circles, working you know out to in right. So you start with Singapore and the Philippines, then we go to Korea, and then chapter six takes us to captivity on the home front. Uh, this is a, a so you're talking about a Japanese POW camp in Fukuoka, uh, Kyushu, the southern island of Japan. 
Um, so you examine in this chapter, uh, and similarly to, to some of what you've been talking about with Korea, but why accounts of the POW experience are so sharply divergent in Fukuoka um, and what factors explain uh, how they varied between camps, uh, how they changed over the course of the conflict. Um, so tell us about that. You know, what were some of those factors um, and how were they similar or different, I guess, from Korea as well? Um, and then... I thought it was particularly interesting the way you, uh, again, paid very close attention to the identity and status of the captives and how that seems to have affected their experiences and their narratives. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I've already talked a little bit about why camps differ from each other, but just looking at uh, camps in Japan, I mean, I think the experience of being a captive in Kyushu, just to take a, not the camp that I looked at, but another place in Kyushu, the experience of working in a mining camp, right? This is the most kind of the the most unsafe kind of mining that we find um, versus working bottling soda pop, right? Those are different jobs that people could have had in different camps within Japan. And so the treatment, the experience of being a prisoner of war is going to vary um, considerably just if you hold that variable the same. Um, but what this chapter does, as you mentioned, is talk about how in one camp the experience could vary tremendously. You know, in this one campus place that I'm calling one camp, it was at three different locations at different times in the war, but we st it's still treated as one administrative unit, right? Um, and um, so one, the way that I approached this research problem, right, is I tried to track down everybody who was held in this particular camp, which is a tricky research proposition because the way that these uh, archives are held is they're held nationally. So the experience of of, um, you know, Australian prisoners of war. And so you have to go within that to figure out who is where. And um, anyway, so that's what I tried to do with this. And so since, as I mentioned with the case of Korea, a camp, uh, somebody could be held in Korea and Japan and the Philippines. This is very, very common. Um, getting back to the idea of uh, the question of identity and status, um, I'd add to that uh, place and time, right? Um, so that you know, just sort of personnel changes from February until 1945, a doctor prevented the uh, distribution of food supplies to POWs, right? So that it would be different if you were there in January of 1945 or earlier. But, um, and as you know, um, I think quite well, Japan as a whole every, experienced dramatic change over the course of the conflict, right? So this leads to widespread deprivation that fundamentally alters the context of captivity. This is another way in which time is important, um, even if a prisoner is held in the same camp. Um, and those outside the camps became quite critical, uh, critical of the perceived treatment of those within. Right. So by 1945, the home minister's warning the war minister that citizens were complaining that POWs were treated better. You know, this happens in Korea, too, by the way. The people outside the gates are convinced that the people within the gates are uh, treated much better. And they were. But we also see this in the United States. We see um, people in, um, in, in, who are living outside internee camps uh, for Japanese saying, why are these people being treated so well? Which isn't really that that's what the archival uh, records show that's not how we would consider them today, right? But these these are things that people people said, right? Um, and just you know, and in terms of identity and status, the experience of uh, it really experience differed based on um, nationality, on um, uh, and other kinds of identity markers. Uh, I think one thing that um, is that happened to allied prisoners held in 
Japanese hands often, which they didn't expect, was that officers and um, servicemen were treated the same, right? This is something that no one expected um, because they, they weren't supposed to be. Yeah, that was just a really interesting, uh, I, I, I was one of those people that wasn't expecting that. <laughs> um, so, so one of the, uh, one of the things that I, you know, we've sort of, uh, implicitly addressed thus far is that in some ways, you know, your book is, and, and this is, you know, I don't mean this in the derogatory sense it's often used, but it's a revisionist history, right? I mean, you're trying to make a, a very specific intervention here. Um, not so much, I think in the, history itself, but in thinking about the sort of, um, you know, history of memory uh, and that, uh, and so this is, you know, one of the, one of the really powerful ways that I think you do this comes up again in this chapter, chapter six, um, you know, more starkly than in other chapters, although it's, it's referenced throughout. Um, And you write, and this is a quote, um, as much as POWs hated the beatings and other punishments that the guards inflicted on them, by 1945, those were not the greatest threat of death or injury. Instead, it was bombing by U.S. Army Air Corps uh, B-29s. Um, so how great was the threat of friendly fire to allied POWs? And sort of what does this mean to your, your bigger narrative about uh, Japanese POW camps? Okay, so the threat, just to answer your question, that threat was tremendous. More than half of the fatalities um, resulted from friendly fire from Allied attacks on Japanese transport ships or Allied uh, bombings, fire bombings in Japan. Um, the Allies bombed boats, despite knowing that Americans were abroad. We have good archival evidence from that, of that from, um, in the U.S. sources and the British sources and, and in other places as well. Um, you know, I think that it is... And the memory of this is really a tricky thing, um, to, to say the least. <laughs> and, you know, that more, uh, if we look at the Australian experience, um, more Australians died in captivity than died, died fighting, right? So this is a really important thing for a part of people's memory. Um, and all I try to do in the book is to stick as close to the archival record as I can. Yeah, that seems like probably a pretty good idea given how fraught this this is. Yeah, um, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna do a little bit of uh, violence to your book here and treat chapters seven, eight, and nine again as kind of a unit here. Um, <laughs> I hope that's okay because I, uh, the this is you know, this is uh, about the kind of post war settlement part of the POW question, uh, which when I picked up the book was not really something that I you know. Uh, expected to, to be a part of it. And yet it turns out to be, uh, again, another really interesting intervention that you're doing in thinking about um, what this all meant, not just in terms of national memory, but in terms of uh, legal, you know, post-war legal uh, international law kind of settlements. Um, so chapters seven and eight, that's uh, chapter seven, endings and beginnings, chapter eight, undue process. Um, these are about post-war treatment of Japanese POWs and accused war criminals, respectively. Uh, and in both cases, you argue that the treatment was haphazard and highly variable, which is becoming a refrain for the way that a lot of things were treated in the war, I think. Um, so what were the similarities and differences in the ways that soldiers and officials were treated? Um, and what does that tell us then about the allies? Um, and, and I want to connect this to something you say in chapter nine, right? Because you look at, there at a number of different war crimes trials carried out in different places, the Philippines, Singapore, et cetera. And you're quite skeptical and I think a little bit critical of the scattershot nature of the punishments meted out. 
Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, so when I was writing this book, the way that I uh, started thinking about it was to think about the um, difficulty of gathering evidence to bring people to trial. Um, because a lot of the evidence that I came across in various archives was evidence collected by the people who were, by the, for example, by the, the you at the American Jacks who were collecting materials to prosecute um, the allied war criminals, right? And so that is how it is organized um, in, in the U.S. archives as well as other national archives. Um, and so what you see people doing is gathering accounts um, from prisoners. They're placing, for example, they're placing uh, advertisements. The U.S. government is placing advertisements in a local newspaper here. This is why I knew about it in Long Island, in New York, called Newsday, to if you've been a um, prisoner of war, then please come in and we can get your account. I mean, they, they, they tried to interview them as soon as they came out of the camps, but they had to, they also had to take more evidence from them once they had returned to the United States. Um, and in seeking to gather evidence to try um, members of the, or the Imperial Japanese army, um, they had to gather accounts against guards whose names prisoners didn't often know, right? They referred to them by nickname, and they were trying to, you know, to to triangulate the the guards and the prisoners, and um, and this was quite a challenging task for people who didn't speak Japanese, either the investigators or the um, prisoners of war in most cases, right? Um, and I think it's really a difficult process to run a war crimes trial at the end of a war. Uh, this is not something unique to this particular war. This this these war crimes trials, but it's, it's shouldn't be understated. Um, and it's clear that abuses and suffering and tragedy happen. Um, but the question of who is responsible is a, is a difficult one. Um, the prosecutors couldn't fix responsibility on one person or explain the policies that cause suffering. And it was easier to imagine, I think, that everyone was a war criminal. And so that meant that the trials could be arbitrary. And as the historians Sandra Wilson and Robert Cribb have found, and others, that translators and medical personnel were at highest risk of prosecution and conviction, right? So um, that doesn't mean that they were more responsible, but merely that people, that the prisoners probably remembered them better, right? And were able to identify them. Um, and the main trial of, um, I've referred to one of, I referred earlier to the Prisoner of War um, Information Bureau and management offices, who the organizations, the agencies that were responsible for running Prisoner of War and the trial of its, they only had one person left to try because the other two heads had committed suicide. Um, and by the time this trial was run, um, they, they're using, his name is Tamara, he's more a symbol than anything else, a high-level bureaucrat who headed a powerless agency. But as I mentioned already, abuses happen and there needed to be a resolution. Um, and then when you follow the story further, right, um, the aftermath of when, after prisoners are held, uh, when I mean prisoners here, I mean the, the, the guards um, who were responsible, right? Um, when they are released, it's driven by the politics of a new Cold War when Japan becomes an American ally. Yeah, I found uh, throughout that the uh, the way that you sort of trouble the moral certitude of the the good war, right, um, is is really you know a sort of powerful thing that you're you're doing here. Um, and I think this is you know the, the last sort of set of questions I want to ask here goes a little bit to uh, that and the sort of long term 
ways that that uh, uh, we've tried to deal with some of that messiness in terms of um, international law. Uh, so this, again, is going to treat chapters eight and nine together. So in chapter eight, you point out that allied prosecutors and judges uh, struggled with some legal issues that were quite difficult in their cases against camp officials. Um, and this question of, you know, who's responsible, uh, you talk about the commanders, the, the doctors, the guards, right? And so then in, in chapter nine, um, which is prisoners of history renegotiating the, the Geneva Conventions in the wake of war, um, you really talk about how that affects the renegotiations of the Geneva Conventions after 1945, right? Namely that though it's not a party to the negotiations, quote, Japan could actually be seen to have had a big impact on both international law and societal understanding of how captives should and should not be treated in wartime. Japan was present even when it was absent. Uh, and then you go on to, to sort of conclude that bringing Japan into the picture helps us to see, uh, you know, the flaws, the shortcomings, as you put it, in the process itself. So if you could sort of finish up by explaining what you mean about that. Right. So I'm talking about this moment when the Geneva Conventions are negotiated or, or renegotiated after the war. And, you know, as, as we all know, uh, Japan is at this point under the Allied occupation. So it's not a sovereign state. So they're... For that reason, another's not permitted to actually um, be a part of the renegotiation of the Geneva Conventions, but they still attend to Japanese and uh, to Americans serving uh, to represent the Allied occupation. And the and if we know from their records that they were not sure they should be a part of it, right? They had a lot of specific questions about Japan. If Japan, after all, was to be giving up aggressive war, then you know, then how would Japan um, deal with all of these questions? Um, but in terms of the renegotiation of the renegotiation of the Geneva Conventions themselves, these um, these have often been mentioned, but not consistently applied since their renegotiation in 1949. Uh, I teach a class in the fall on war and captivity, and um, we look at different kinds of, we look at the Korean War and the Vietnam War, because it's, it's mostly US history focused, but, um, and all the time you're hearing about the Geneva Conventions, but they're not, used, and there are good reasons why, but um, they're not used, but they're often mentioned. And uh, Japan, the experience of uh, allies fighting, or the experience of allies in captivity during, um, during the Second World War was important in the renegotiation of the conventions themselves uh, because some of the people, the Australian representative, for example, the Australian delegate had been a captive, right? So his life story um, was really important to how we thought about um, how these conventions should be renegotiated. And, um, you know, it's sort of inseparable from it in lots of ways, uh, whether that's prisoner treatment and, and this kind of thing, or the um, importance of civilians. Um, and I, I would just finish up by, by saying that when Americans discuss how captives should be treated, how foreign captives should be treated in the U.S., this is an experience that's referred to, the experience of, um, of, uh, the experience of uh, Americans held captive in the Second World War. But to me, it, it's mentioned, but uh, we don't think about it, right? We don't think about it as this was an experience that was, 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 where Americans underwent a lot of suffering, um, and therefore we have rewritten these conventions, but yet the Amer American government doesn't, I mean, different administrations, it depends on the administration, isn't um, perhaps as ready uh, to um, keep this experience close to mind as I think they should. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And then that's a really great place to to wrap up because it speaks to the sort of you know the the, the larger importance of the book um, beyond the sort of questions that you, know, you and I have as Japanese historians um, and people thinking about the history of memory, but also these you know the way that it, it it's still affecting the the world we live in today. Um, so I want to, uh, in that same sort of forward-thinking uh, uh, mode that I'm that we're now in, uh, ask you about um, uh, what it is that you're up to now that you have this book out, uh, and what we can expect from you in the future. Yeah, so I've been working on my next project, which is going to be about the internment experience of civilians. So the first book was about um, allied prisoners, right? These, And then the next book is about civilians held captive. And so this is, well, I got really interested in the experience of internees um, that we know so well in the U.S. This isn't, of course, just a U.S. experience, uh, part of American history. They're Japanese held captive in Australia or in Britain. Um, and the records are all mixed in with the records that I was looking at. So I've had an archival head start, but uh, that is my plan for my next project. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Uh, and I hope that uh, when, when that book comes out, that you'll be back here on the podcast again. Uh, no, no pressure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I hope to see you then. And I want to uh, thank you for being so generous with your time today uh, and uh, let you get back to uh, whatever it is that you're doing in lovely New York. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you.